You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Joe Exotic and this is Sarge. He was like a mythical character who owned 1,200 tigers and lions and bears. They have a heart and a soul and a mind. I've learned from them. Netflix docuseries Tiger King about the life of former zookeeper and convicted felon Joe Exotic became an immediate hit in 2020, watched by millions of people confined during the early days of the pandemic. In the first episode of the series, there are two clips of Jim Carrey from the movie Ace Ventura 2, one riding an elephant and the other with a monkey on his shoulder. They're in a sequence of clips from movies as Bhagavan Antle describes his work training animals for Hollywood movies, including Ace Ventura. People in Hollywood, people in other places came to me and said, hey, we need a tiger to do this. We would like a tiger to do that. You are a good kitty. I made 500 gigantic international movies from Ace Ventura, Jungle Book, Dr. Doolittle, Mighty Joe Young. I mean, it's a huge list of features that we made. The clips are about one and a half seconds combined without the audio, but the producers of Ace Ventura 2 are suing Netflix and Good Films for copyright infringement. Joining me is intellectual property litigator Terrence Ross, a partner at Katten Rosenman. Terry, it's two clips without the audio. The lawsuit says five seconds, but it's really more like one and a half seconds. The average person might ask why there should be compensation for that. It's an excellent point, and it's why this exact same situation comes up over and over again, particularly in the context of documentaries. The typical maker of a documentary or television show such as Tiger King is not trained in copyright law and has the same reaction as your man on the street does to this situation that it's really short and they ought to be able to use it. And that presents 
a recurring problem in this area. Do you have any idea how much it would cost if the creators went to the Ace Ventura people and said, we want to license these clips? So I don't know how much you could license this particular clip from Ace Ventura. Typically, that's not the problem, though. I've had a number of documentary filmmakers come to me with this issue, and they say, you know, we anticipated this. We went to the owner of the copyright on the snippet that we wanted to use, and the process of getting a permission was a nightmare. Most television shows, most films, even documentaries that are shot over a longer period of time do have a schedule. And the content owners from whom permission to use these short snippets is sought often make it as difficult as possible to get a permission from them so as to drive up the cost that the entity seeking to use the snippet might be willing to pay just to shortcut the process of getting permission. What would the legal analysis be here? The unfortunate tendency that most folks have is to immediately and almost like a knee-jerk reflex turn to the fair use doctrine and say, well, this is a short snippet and we're using it in a transformative way and therefore fair use would apply. And my advice to the clients coming to me with this problem has always been your first line of defense should be the so-called de minimis use defense. This is a defense that was established by the Second Circuit, which is the premier federal appellate court for copyright law a number of years ago in a case called Sandoval versus New Line Cinema. This rose out of the movie Seven. I don't know if you remember this movie. It starred Brad Pitt, one of my youngest daughter Charlotte's favorite actors of all time, as a New York City detective investigating a serial killer. And there's a scene in the movie where Brad Pitt and Morgan Freeman, who's the other detective, go into the suspect's apartment. The suspect is a photographer. And in the sort of old school way, he has strung up on a clothesline in his apartment. Photographs he's taken that are just fresh out of the chemical solution and are drying. And as the detectives approach these photographs, you can see that they are not fictional photographs, but that the production company has used real photographs by the sort of famous photographer Jorge Sandoval. And Sandoval sued for copyright infringement. And the total amount of time that you see these photographs is maybe 30 seconds in the movie Seven. And during a couple of those seconds, as they're approaching the photos, you can't really tell what they are. They're a little bit blurry. But there does come a point in time which you can clearly see that they're Sandoval's photographs. And the Second Circuit said, this is not copyright infringement. They said that there is a de minimis use test for copyright infringement. And if you use just a, a tiny second of a copyright work, that that does not constitute copyright infringement. And you never get into the complexities of the fair use defense. So do you think that's a winning defense in the Tiger King case? Here in the Tiger King, I think I, that's particularly true. As you said, Jim, the lawsuit alleges it's five seconds out of the film Ace Ventura 2. When you actually look at it on the screen, it's probably more like two seconds. Well, that's a lot less than the 30 seconds that Sandoval's photographs were on the screen in the movie Seven. And it seems to me that that's really the defense that should be applicable here. And I think the mistake that we make in talking about these cases involving the taking of short clips is to always default to the fair use defense. When you're much better off going with this Sandoval case out of the Second Circuit and saying, this is a de minimis use. 
Terry, I want to discuss what happens if the de minimis defense doesn't work. How would the fair use defense apply here? So the argument used by defendant in the fair use context here would be that the four factors of the fair use test all cut in favor of application of the fair use defense. And the most important of those is probably the second factor. The second factor takes into account the amount of the taking of the work. And the argument is, I've not taken the entire movie A Centaur 2. I haven't even taken an entire scene. I've taken this tiny film clip of a couple seconds, and that should drive the fair use analysis. And oh, by the way, moreover, I'm not using it in the context that it's used in Ace Ventura 2. I'm using it to establish a completely different point here that there are these interactions between humans and the animal kingdom that can be humorous. And therefore, it's a transformative use. And that combination of taking a very, very tiny amount, the transformative use should be sufficient to carry a fair use defense. But the problem with that defense is it comes up late in the game, a copyright lawsuit. You spend a lot of attorney's fees to get to that point. And the analysis is very complicated for most trial court judges. And not surprisingly, they often get it wrong. And therefore, you have to take it up to appeal to the circuit court to get it fixed, which runs up your attorney's fees even more. And the reality is many filmmakers, television makers, can't afford that process. The benefit of the de minimis use test is you can bring it on a motion to dismiss. It's quick and cheap. It allows you to keep on your filming schedule without burning your budget on attorney's fees. Do, do these cases usually come up after the documentary is shown or after the movie is shown? So that is probably the most frequent context in which this issue comes up, but it's not the only one. There are a lot of uh, filmmakers out there who have gone to good film schools like NYU and have been alerted to the problem. They may not completely understand copyright law, but they're able to red flag an issue when it comes along and um, go seek permission ahead of time. You're always in this quandary then, though, as the filmmaker. If I go seek permission and deny, and I use it anyway, does that mean that I've sort of admitted that I needed to get permission, that it would be copyright infringement without uh, permission? Um, if you remember the famous Supreme Court case that came out of um, uh, in this context that involved uh, uh, Ray Orbison's song, uh, song Pretty Woman, um, a band wanted to do a sort of uh, a punk version of that song. They went to the estate of Orbison and asked for permission. Um, to use part of the song and were denied and then did it anyway. And of course, in the subsequent copyright lawsuit, that was one of the big facts that came up. Well, they asked us for permission. The Supreme Court ultimately decided that was not relevant, um, that you're entitled to fair use, um, even if you went and first asked permission and got turned down. Um, you don't abrogate the fair use event. But it is a problem. I assume that a lot of documentary producers don't have the money to go get legal help beforehand. So this is what the copyright owner knows, that there is usually not a budget um, for um, lawyers to litigate. And they think that they sort of have you over a barrel once you come and ask for permission. 
and can either uh, prevent you from doing it in the first place or squeeze some a few thousand dollars out of you. A um, couple of years ago, um, one of the uh, uh, prominent copyright professors in this country, Peter Yazzie, over at a American University Law School, um, set up a clinic um, to do pro bono work in the copyright field. And one of their missions was to give um, uh, free advice to filmmakers, particularly documentary filmmakers, um, on this whole subject of permissions. And um, it, this is one of the mechanisms that has developed out of the legal profession for addressing this uh, imbalance of power uh, between copyright owners and uh, companies seeking to use um, their copyrights, in this particularly short snippets or film clips, um, and who simply don't have the, the, the legal wherewithal to address the problem is that the um, uh, response from the copyright bar has been to uh, address this through pro bono initiatives, such as the one that Professor Yazi at American University set up. And that has worked pretty well to the extent that particularly young filmmakers are aware of it and bother to pick up the phone and call. Um, because if the copyright owner gets a letter, gets a phone call from a really good copyright lawyer um, saying, hey, look, you're overstepping the bounds of copyright here, and we intend to defend, um, it often backs them off and makes it possible for the filmmaker to use the clip. Suppose this goes to a jury, and they decide that you know they're going to award damages. How would damages be determined? Because it seems like, in a strange sort of way, seeing an Ace Ventura clip might lead people to watch the movie again, this whole movie. So what are the damages, really, to the Ace Ventura people? Calculating damages in this area is very tricky. Um, there is typically not a market for short clips. Now, that's not always true. There, there are some movies that have iconic short clips uh, that advertisers, for example, want to use. Um, but for the most part, there is no marketplace. And, and how do we measure damages? We, we measure it as um, what a um, willing buyer and a willing seller would agree to the price for it. And if you don't have uh, any past experience of willing buyers coming in and agreeing to a price with the copyright owner, it makes it very hard. So you bring in experts, so-called damages experts, who uh, perform an economic model as to the value um, and present that. Um, the defendant, however, could mitigate those damages by arguing that, um, as you just did, this, this actually, um, the use of these short snippets actually uh, enhances the value of Ace Ventura 2 because people are reminded of it and they go back and watch it again, you know, pay for online streaming of it. Um, and that is a calculus that the jury has to perform. Is this a case that might be settled? I mean, you have a deep pocket. You have Netflix on one side. Might they just settle it instead of going through trial? So Netflix might have an interest in establishing better law in this field for purposes of benefiting the entire community of filmmakers. Netflix does have original content now. They do have copyrights of their own 
but for the most part, they are a consumer of copyrights as opposed to an owner. And they do have deep pockets, as you point out. The movie Seven went all the way up to the Second Circuit because you had New Line Cinema as the defendant who had very substantial resources and was not about to yank the movie out of theaters and edit it to remove that scene, which was actually a somewhat important scene in the movie. So the times you tend to get new precedent established in this area is when you have exactly as you've described a deep pocket defendant who is more interested in the principle than the fees that are going to be incurred and is willing to push it to the very end. Terry, how often do these issues about the use of clips come up? And does it have a chilling effect on young producers? So, June, one of the problems that particularly young filmmakers in the documentary field experience here is the notion of what some people call copyright bullies. These are content owners who are overly aggressive and, quite frankly, overstep their legal rights in order to either extract payments from secondary users or to deter them from using their copyright works in the first place. And I have in the past had young documentary filmmakers I work with come to me and say, oh my gosh, we accidentally have in the background of one of our scenes unplanned music from a copyrighted song. And we're we're concerned that once we put this out, we'll get a threat of infringement. And the notion is that they are in effect self-censoring out of a fear of a copyright infringement lawsuit. And you see this also in the First Amendment space where you have publications engage in self-censoring because they're not sure that the courts will fully protect and guard their First Amendment rights. So this is a really bad thing for society that we have filmmakers self-censoring out of concern that they will end up on the receiving end of a copyright infringement lawsuit that they can't afford and that their film schedule does not allow them to incorporate or that they end up having to change the work after it's already been filmed. It's a real problem that we have in society because these filmmakers don't understand that they actually have very strong defenses and rights to make certain types of use. Thanks, Terry. That's intellectual property litigator Terrence Ross of Catton Rosenman. Prince Andrew has been stripped of his military titles and charities. Buckingham Palace made that announcement just one day after the British royal failed to convince a judge to toss a lawsuit accusing him of sexually abusing a teenage girl decades ago. The palace said the Duke of York is defending this case as a private citizen. Prince Andrew denies all the accusations made in the lawsuit. Joining me is Bloomberg legal reporter Bob Van Voris. Bob, tell us about Virginia Defray's lawsuit against Prince Andrew. Virginia Dufresne sued Prince Andrew for uh, allegedly abusing her uh, sexually when she was a teenage girl a couple of decades ago. She claims that he was one of the people to whom Jeffrey Epstein lent her for sexual abuse when she was a teenager. So what is Prince Andrew's defense? Well, first of all, Prince Andrew denies that he did anything to Virginia Dufresne. The defense that he's raised in court most recently is that a 2009 settlement agreement between Virginia Dufresne and Jeffrey Epstein, that that includes a clause that releases him from any liability for anything that he might have done. So he claims that that should let him out of the case entirely. A judge in New York has considered that claim, and he rejected it. The judge, Louis Kaplan, 
ruled that it's too early in the case for him to be able to sort out the different claims on both sides uh, as to what that release means, whether it refers to Prince Andrew, and whether Prince Andrew is a proper party to, to raise that. So uh, he ruled against Prince Andrew, and the case goes on against them. It's a 43-page opinion, which seems long to say it's too soon. Well, that's exactly right. The judge went into what the parties may have been thinking when they entered this agreement, but he said it's far from a model of clear and precise drafting, which is really true. The clause that's in question here releases from liability, quote, any other person. Now, that's in addition to Epstein and the people around him, his employees and attorneys, but any other person or entity who could have been included as a potential defendant in the 2019 lawsuit by Dufre against Epstein. So Prince Andrew claims that he is included in that, that he could have been named by Dufre that he was one of the people that Epstein was thinking about when he entered into that settlement. And by the way, under that settlement, Jufre was paid $500,000 to release her claims against Epstein and against, you know, right now we're trying to figure out who else. You've written that Epstein used high-pressure litigation tactics to reach these secret settlements. That's right. Epstein had a history of entering settlements with girls you know, who were later women who sued him to try to keep it quiet. He paid in excess of a million dollars in some cases, 500000 we know, to Virginia Dufre. But he included, and, and in the Dufre settlement, um, there are included confidentiality provisions. He didn't want people to know that these claims were filed against him and that he was settling them for you know, pretty substantial sums. That obviously came out later. He is alleged to have put a lot of pressure on these people, and uh, it's pretty clear that he used aggressive litigation tactics and aggressive settlement tactics. So has any evidence been exchanged yet between the parties? Very little. They just started. uh, The case has been pending for, you know, about half a year. So there hasn't been very much activity yet in the case. But one sign that the judge was going to rule against Prince Andrew, even before he came out with his 43-page decision the other day, he decided not to suspend that pretrial exchange of evidence. And so now that he has ruled against Andrew, we can expect that to go forward. And, you know, that'll take a little while. That'll take uh, certainly months, maybe longer. The judge in pretrial hearings doesn't seem particularly sympathetic to Prince Andrew's claims. Uh, He doesn't. I mean, the basic ruling was, look, we've got two different readings of this release that are potentially reasonable. And as a judge, this early in the case, you know, I can't rule on that right now, that it has to go further into the case and have you know, potentially the jury decide who was included in that release and whether the prince was included in that release. But he made short shrift of a lot of his arguments, including one argument that Virginia Dufresne's complaint wasn't sufficiently clear about what happened to her. Kaplan read it from the bench. He kind of mocked the prince's argument that it was not clear enough, saying, quote, It was sexual intercourse, involuntary sexual intercourse. There's no doubt about what that means, at least since somebody else was in the White House, apparently referring to 
Bill Clinton, who ironically is the president who appointed Kaplan to the bench. So what's the next step in the lawsuit? Obviously, Andrew is going to have to get together with his legal counsel and figure out what he's going to do. This is going to go on for a while. He has to decide if he wants to remain in the headlines in connection with allegations of child sexual abuse. So presumably, he's going to think about whether this is a case that can be settled, whether he wants to go forward and try to vindicate his good name, or if he wants to just sit in Britain and not contest the case and let it go forward you know, without him. The parties will be uh, starting the, the process of exchanging documents, taking depositions, all of the things that you do to get ready for a trial. Could he appeal the judge's decision? Um, it's possible. Usually in cases like this, you have to wait until the case is over to take it to an appeals court. It's possible that the prince will ask uh, Judge Kaplan to allow him to take the case up to the uh, the appeals court. Uh, if he's denied, it's possible he would also just ask the appeals court to, to reach down and grab this case and uh, and delay it while they decide whether Judge Kaplan's ruling on this was was correct, those kind of appeals, you know, if Kaplan doesn't agree with it, it's it's unusual for the Court of Appeals to take uh, to take up an appeal at this point. Although that's a possibility. And she was not one of the four victims who testified at the Maxwell trial, is she? That's correct. She was not. She's made uh, many very public accusations. Some of the women who testified at the Maxwell trial testified under procedures that allowed them to keep their anonymity as, as much as possible. I think some of those names are out there also, but they testified as so-called Jane Doe's. Thanks, Bob. That's Bob Van Voris, Bloomberg Legal Reporter. You know success when you see it, or you think you do. The people in the spotlight, athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do. That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. 
I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. President Joe Biden beat out every president since Ronald Reagan in getting judges confirmed in his first year. And Biden helped to diversify the bench with his nominees. 20 were black, 14 were Hispanic or Latino, 13 were Asian American and Pacific Islander, and three were Native American. But the road to confirmations may be more difficult this year. Joining me is Professor Carl Tobias of the University of Richmond Law School. So, first of all, tell us what Joe Biden accomplished with his judicial confirmations in 2021. Well, he tied Ronald Reagan's record for the first year of her presidency because Biden confirmed 40 appellate and district judges, 11 for the appeals courts, uh, 29 for the district courts. Uh, and we, you have to go back to the time of Reagan to see anyone who came close to that. And Biden easily surpassed the number whom Trump uh, nominated and confirmed in 2017. So it was very successful. And the nominees who were confirmed and the nominees themselves were very diverse in terms of ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation, experience, and ideology. And all of that is critically important for the federal judiciary. So some groups are complaining that there should be more Hispanics on the bench and nominees who are disabled or who have a background in disability law. Are you getting the best candidate possible when you're looking to change the diversity on the bench? Well, it depends on which kind of diversity you're talking about, but the types of diversity which Biden has promoted, I think, are important to have a judiciary that reflects the country, uh, gives more confidence to citizens in the federal courts when it reflects America, uh, limits prejudice against people who might experience discrimination in the federal courts. And so all of that is valuable and also means you'll have a better decision. And so uh, everyone has a different definition of what a qualified person is for the federal bench. But certainly all of Biden's nominees and confirmees have been highly qualified. And I think something like 90% have the highest American Bar Association rating. There's a vacancy on the Philadelphia Circuit Court. That'll give Biden a chance to flip that circuit? Yes. Brooke Smith, who was uh, the chief judge of the court, uh, recently assumed senior status. And uh, he was appointed by a Republican president. And so that means when his seat is filled, that that court will flip back, if you will, to a majority appointed by Democratic president. So how important is that, you know, flipping of the circuits 
when the panels are composed of three judges, and so it depends on the luck of the draw for that. It does, and you also have to remember en banc review uh, by a majority of judges in active service, though the Second Circuit rarely takes up en banc, but other courts are quite active on that front. But you're correct. I mean, there's supposed to be random draws for three judge panels, and it's somewhat of a crude measure to talk about who the appointing president was. But generally, I think, when it's the Republicans, the nominees and appointees are more conservative. And when it's a Democrat, the appointees and nominees are more moderate and sometimes liberal. So tell us a little about the Sixth Circuit nominee who's facing opposition from the Republican senators. Andre Mathis is a nominee for the Sixth Circuit. He's highly qualified. He's a longtime commercial uh, litigator, but has done a a fair amount of criminal uh, litigation as well, Um, and uh, was nominated recently by the president. The home state senators from Tennessee, Senator Blackburn, who sits on Judiciary Committee, and Senator Haggerty said they weren't consulted enough by the White House in terms of whether they agreed to that nomination. And the president did go forward and nominate Mathis, but the White House and the counsel's office, who have responsibility for that, said that there was considerable consultation with the home state senators. So it may be that Senator Blackburn will bring that up in the hearing. But remember that Senator Grassley, as chair of judiciary in 2017, carved out an exception from blue slip called a circuit exception. And with that change, 54 extremely conservative Republican appointees of Trump were able to uh, move through the judiciary. And Senator Blackburn voted for every one of Trump's nominees from a blue state who did not have two blue slips. And so it doesn't seem like she has much grounds to complain in this situation, given her voting record. And I think the White House is certainly going to honor the circuit exception that was created by Republicans and used to basically appoint all of the uh, Trump appointees in blue states over objections of home state senators from the Democratic Party. And so that's where we are, and I think Chair Durbin is committed to that position. So we'll see how that plays out in the hearing if he's on. Is he considered sort of liberal? It's not clear. He's been in private practice, I believe, his whole career with a smaller firm in Memphis. And then now with Butler & Snow, which is a fairly substantial firm in that part of the country, And he's litigated many cases, mostly commercial, but a number of criminal cases that he took on, I think, pro bono, and some quite substantial and difficult cases in the criminal justice system. And so I don't know whether they think he is liberal or not. He's a partner in that major firm, has a record as a highly qualified litigator, and so knows his way around federal courts. What other nominations are ahead? Well, there were a number uh, of nominations, 75 
which is a very substantial number in 2021. And what's most striking is how the Biden administration is prioritizing its nominations by first being sure that as many appellate nominees are there to fill all of those vacancies, as well as targeting states that have high numbers or percentages of vacancies, for example, New York and especially California, and emergency, which both of those states have substantial numbers of. So they're setting priorities about which are most critical and then moving people. For example, uh, on December 15, there was a package of 10 nominees, the most recent, some of the most recent nominees, and a number of them were from California and New York. And so they, that is the way in which they're, they're proceeding, and I think that makes sense for the needs of the judiciary. Biden has been concentrating. The overwhelming number of nominations were in states represented by two Democrats. Do you see things getting tougher in the second year? And certainly it's a year when they have to move fast due to the upcoming possible change in the Senate. Yes, I I think they're very aware of that. And they are acting uh, as if they might lose the Senate majority. And I think that's pragmatic and realistic on the part of the administration. And so they're doing everything possible to expedite nominations and confirmations. For example, tomorrow, I think, they're likely to be five district nominees as well as Mathis. And I think we'll see every two weeks that Senator Durbin, as chair of judiciary, will schedule hearings and move them forward to committee votes and then on to the floor um, as quickly as possible. There'll be more nominee slates, I think, this month and every month and probably two or three uh, a month uh, as we move forward um, during 2022. So I think that's the plan. As to your point, I think that there are enough uh, appointees who Democratic presidents confirm to take up much of the time of the Senate this year. Though I think there's been outreach, and we'll see for certain that the three nominees from the Northern District of Ohio who have come forward and need a committee vote tomorrow, all supported by Portman, who's a Republican, and Brown, who's a Democrat, and work through their excellent bipartisan selection commission, we'll see them confirmed. So it shows that at least in swing states or purple states that you can work together and move forward. Thanks, Carl. That's Carl Tobias of the University of Richmond Law School. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.